0: Well, good morning, church. I think it's safe to say that none of us have had a July 4th weekend quite like this. Many of us were looking forward to being at the World Discipleship Summit down in Orlando, Florida, but instead we've been battling a pandemic, battling racial injustice, and haven't physically seen each other in four months. I know phase three starts tomorrow. I'm still trying to figure out what that means. And uh, I know many of us just looking forward to that haircut Uh, I got one a couple days ago from my daughter, she did a mighty fine job, and uh, for a very good price. Anyway, as the tagline said earlier, I'm John Markowski, and after serving in our sister church in Los Angeles, my wife Arlene and our two children, Talia and Jaden, moved to Manhattan ten years ago, and really because of your generosity in the special contribution uh, and a dream called the Manhattan Project, the spiritual version. And even through a decade of hurricanes and bombings, a pandemic in the Big Apple, we've also seen amazing miracles happen. Uh, love found, babies born, friendships bonded, and souls saved. And we've never looked back. We're grateful to be here. This verse that we're about to look at in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 has been a great principle that we've been trying to live by in our ministry. But Paul tells the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1-8, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. You know, Paul's saying there's one group in the church that is unaware of the suffering of another group in the church. And since we are the body of Christ and all parts are affected by one another, we do our best to know, to be aware, of what each other is going through. You know, I wanna recognize that for some of us, Independence Day is not a happy holiday. And in the words of Frederick Douglass, it's a cruel reminder of a gross injustice that our nation was built on the backs of slaves. You know, we took a survey at our last midweek service, um, just asking people what they were feeling about the upcoming holiday, about July 4th, and whether they were looking forward to it to not, or not. I wanna read you a couple of the answers that we got. One person wrote, I'm not excited for the holiday. Doesn't feel like freedom, but it's nice to have a day off. Another person wrote, No, I don't celebrate the 4th, and my dog hates fireworks. I hear that. And finally, uh, someone wrote, No, it wasn't made for people of color like me. Now, I know I'm speaking to a church of all different kinds of people, races, and backgrounds, so some of you are not surprised to hear answers like that, but some of you are. And the bottom line is, is that we're made aware and that we make every effort to be aware so that we can support each other. But hear this, in Philippians chapter three, verse 20 and 21, it says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform us to be like his glorious body. Now, imagine for a moment that you are a citizen of the nation of my living room. All right, bear with me. You're a citizen of the nation of my living room. Not my apartment, not Manhattan, just the living room. But you get access to the couch, TV. You've got a lot of good books to read in the living room. You've got a nice window. There's a spot to do some push-ups. And, and the router looks pretty good, but the Wi-Fi, just to let you know, can get a little sketch. The AC glitches, by the way, and yes, there's a window, and the view is of another building. But you have total freedom, all right? So there, there's one picture. You're a citizen of the nation of my living room. But then, all of a sudden, you have the opportunity to become a citizen of the whole earth. And you've only heard stories about the expansive forests and the fathoms of the ocean and all kinds of people and places and experiences and animals. Keep in mind, all you've seen is city pigeons and so you're overwhelmed with the possibilities but you take the chance and it's incredible you live your best life and you go around you see all that stuff so here you are you get to be a citizen of the earth my question is would you ever go back to the living room I mean you can you have access but why would you when you have all this nostalgia great times on that couch uh, you like tight spaces I'm not sure But in some weird way, this analogy explains the tension of our citizenship as people of God. Because being a citizen of this nation, the U.S., is kind of like being a citizen in the analogy of my living room. It's nothing compared to being a citizen of heaven. And sure, the nation has some good stuff to offer, but it's limited, it's demanding, and it makes promises that it can't keep. You know, on paper, these United States are predicated on the promise of freedom to do what you want to do, to say what you want to say, freedom of spree- speech, freedom of religion, and so on. But can it deliver on these promises? Does it deliver on all those promises? No. That's why we're in the mess we're in. You know, Peter says something relevant about this in Second Peter chapter two nineteen. He says, they promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. See, so that's citizenship in this world. It's an illusion of real freedom. Being a citizen of heaven is actually built on the opposite principle. It's not built on the principle of do, say, whatever you want, just that kind of freedom. It's actually a denial of personal freedom, that we don't say whatever we want, that we don't do whatever we want for the sake of freedom for all. Because if one part isn't free, then that's not true freedom. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself. And don't try to gain the whole world, or you'll lose your very self. So the question is, am I supposed to lose my freedom in order to gain it? Yeah, it's kind of like these masks that we've been wearing. We deny our freedom to be mask-free in order to protect others, and even ourselves, from catching the virus. You know, the first few weeks in Manhattan, not a lot of people were wearing masks and it was a little scary because we were hearing from our medical workers in the church that the hospitals were already slammed uh, with the diseased and the dying but then as the news increased as the as the spike in death toll as all of that came out and became more visible then the masks came out people started to wear them you know the kingdom work of fighting the system of oppression and racism in the world is very challenging it's an uphill battle because like in the early stages of covid a lot of people don't see the problem and still some don't it's kind of like what will smith said it isn't getting worse it's getting filmed and of course most people of color have been living with racism their whole lives and they're wondering why all of a sudden i don't have an answer for that except sin you know sin blindness And we're here even in the church learning how to have these conversations, how to preach about this. And we're making mistakes, but we're going to get through this together. Here are two things that we can do with the freedom that we have to do the good kingdom work of justice on the earth. Two points, limit your freedom, leverage your freedom, limit your freedom and leverage your freedom. So point number one, limit your freedom. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, it says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You know, freedom in Christ isn't freedom from Christ. Which means we have to learn how to limit the privileges that we have that are hurting other people. You know recently I had surgery kind of came out of nowhere but I got this huge swelling on the side of my neck under my jaw looked like hitch I thought I was having an allergic reaction but turns out I had a salivary stone in my salivary gland that was blocking the duct and I'll spare you some of the more graphic details but I had to go in and they did surgery on me and they cut some stuff out and they got not one but two stones Out from under my tongue and for a week after the surgery I couldn't speak my vocal cords were all damaged and I had all these issues with with everything up here and for those that know me I I love to talk and it was very challenging I hated it I hated being put on mute I hated that I couldn't voice my feelings I couldn't share my opinions I couldn't even explain that I didn't want to watch the show that my family was watching you know it was it was a lot For me, at that time, and it hit me, that that's what a lot of my brothers and sisters have been trying to explain to me. My brothers and sisters of color have been sharing with me that that's every day of their lives, that they aren't able to speak, to voice their concerns, to share their opinions, their feelings, to disagree without the fear of retaliation or ignorance or rebuke or worse. So in the month of June... In our ministry, we decided to invite any member of the church that wanted to to sign up for a Zoom slot with Arlene and me and share their experiences with racism. And it was a powerful time, and we're probably going to do more, but to have that many people sign up and share these vulnerable, heart wrenching stories from childhood to now uh, was palpable. And what we would do is we'd have these talks and we would be on Zoom and We would mute ourselves and listen to what they had to say in silence. And we chose to limit our voice, to limit our opinion, our feedback, in order to hear what our brothers and sisters had to share. And they shared. They shared being called the N-word, being stopped and frisked, couldn't get an apartment, being bullied, being accosted. The stories were the statistics that we're reading. These are facts. You know, it doesn't have to be on the news for it to be real. And as a Jew, I've learned about the Nazi death camp officers who would cross the street from work to home and the kids the family would have no idea what they're doing. You know, a lot of members also shared in these times about what they would call microaggressions. You know, and and this can be a very misleading term because it seems like they're a small deal, but you know, we don't call Sins, micro-sins. Sin is sin. And those glances, uh, being followed in the store, uh, accusing eyes, uh, people walking on the other side of the sidewalk to avoid being close to them, uh, those are sins. And, and added up, this is what creates culture. You know, we have an amazing sister in Christ who always dresses up nice. And that's a decision that she makes because of racism. And, and she wishes she could roll out in sweats and a tee, but she knows that there's going to be a consequence of that. As we're hearing these stories, we're reminded we need all hands on deck for this kind of response, this kind of collective empathy that is necessitated by what we're seeing. And that racism also, as we're hearing from these different stories from different people, might feel different. You know, it might feel different to a descendant of American slaves than it does to a second generation African from Nigeria. It's going to feel different to someone who's moved to the U.S. from Haiti when they were a kid than a Korean brother who's lived in New Jersey his whole life or a Puerto Rican sister who's moved from San Juan to Harlem. And that's okay. You know that we were all created in God's image? I want to remind us all of that. We were created in God's perfect image. You know, I saw this amazing TED Talk by a Brazilian woman named Angelica Doss. And she took pictures of people's skin. And she compared it to people around the world. And here's what she found. In essence, a Colombian woman and an Afghani man share the same color skin, the same Pantone of color on the color palette. An African American and an Indian were the same, and so on. This is God's created intent. All the colors in the palette all over the world. See, God isn't colorblind, he's colorful that we don't want to turn away From the differences, we want to celebrate the differences. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. You know, whether you were raised in a black family or a woke white family or a super dope Chinese family, it doesn't matter. Everyone was raised with nature nurture, right? You were handed down some nature in your genetic code and then you got some nurture. And we've been handed some stereotypes that we didn't question as children. And there's a thousand to choose from. Jewish store owner who's gonna rip me off. Black guy on the corner who's a thug. White woman who's a rich snob. Latin dude who's always late. Asian woman who's good at math. These are those stereotypes, just a a couple. And if any of that has lingered in the back of your mind, if it pops up, even subconsciously, just you're not even trying to think about it, when you see someone on the street and boom, boom, you think about that, then what happens is that you have brought that genetically nature, nurture, however it got there, racial stereotype into the present. And then what happens, it becomes an implicit unconscious bias that festers into who you are and how you think. And I feel strongly that the only response to this in an organization like us, the church, is corporate responsibility. I love Daniel's example, the Old Testament prophet in Daniel chapter nine. He basically he says this prayer, and he confesses. He says we have sinned and done wrong. He says we have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants and prophets. What is Daniel doing? What is he praying? Daniel is owning the sins of the past. He's saying we, he's including himself even though he didn't do any of that stuff. That was his forefathers. See, he didn't do anything wrong, but he did something right. He leaned into the shame of his inherited sin and asked God for forgiveness and repentance. No defensiveness, no fragility in his privilege. He accepted it and was part of the solution. I think it's past time that we all, all of us take complete inventory of, of all of our culturally inherited biases, and that we decide we're going to limit our freedom to lift others up rather than being complicit in tearing them down. Point number two leverage your freedom. Limit your freedom, leverage your freedom. You know, as Peter says in the scripture that we just looked at, we've been redeemed from that empty way of life, that empty inheritance. Those negative bias racial stereotypes. We were redeemed from that. And so now the call is to use whatever we've got for good, to leverage it for the kingdom cause. Think of Paul. You know, he used his Roman citizenship to challenge his oppressors. Think of Joseph and Daniel, teenagers who use their wisdom to rise up in, a, in an empire full of injustice to do justice for the marginalized. Think of Esther Another young person who used her cooking skills and savvy to save her people from genocide. You know, we got to think about what we have. You know, some of us have position of influence. Maybe you have some kind of authority. You have a skill. You have wealth. You have access, connections. Maybe people trust you. People like to tell you things. We all have something that we can leverage for the kingdom cause. Let me give you an example. There's a recent New York Times article that came out. And it tells the story of a man named Samuel Brownrich. He spent 25 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Samuel was another falsely accused black man. And new evidence came up. And so his case got brought before a judge in Queens. And this judge, who I think was very brave, said the following words. He said, everyone in the criminal justice system failed you in some way or another. The miscarriage of justice in your case is monumental. It is therefore no surprise that large segments of our city and our country have grave doubts about the criminal justice system and its ability to deliver equal and fair justice to all. And this case demonstrates that their anger is justified. It says later in the article that Mr. Brownridge cried as he reflected on the 25 years that he lost. 25 years! had a family, had a child. And the judge, it says in the article, using a tissue, dabbed tears from his eyes as Mr. Brownrich spoke. You know, I believe there's a powerful example, the judge, powerful example of speaking into the silence. He named injustice from inside the system. He took ownership. He said, we, he apologized. Not something that he did wrong personally, but he took ownership like Daniel. Leverage his worldly authority for the sake of the oppressed. By the way, I think you'll be encouraged to know that that judge is your brother in Christ from the Long Island region, Joe Isaias. It's a powerful, powerful statement about who he is and what he's about. You know, we have teachers in our church fellowship who teach real history, to the students in their classroom, and Christians who are employers who hire with equality and integrity in mind. We have a brother who trains HBCU grads how to have a successful corporate interview, a sister who prepares the recently incarcerated to get work when they come out, writing letters to elected officials, people protesting with their wallets or boycott or the right to vote. And all of us the opportunity to give our special contribution to Africa and the Caribbean. Yes, that sends a strong message, leveraging whatever resources we have to lift up those who need it the most. And let me say this, there's not one way to do this, so let's not get self-righteous about the the way you think is best, and and you can't do this, or you need to do it this way. Jesus didn't have just one way of dealing with injustice. Think about this. Sometimes Jesus would slip out of oppression, all right? Think about Luke chapter 4 when the Jews tried to seize him. He just slipped right out, right? Lived to fight another day. Sometimes Jesus stood up to oppression. We see that as well. He calls Herod out. He confronts oppressors directly at certain times. And then other times, he submits to oppression. It seems crazy, but what is him on the cross? Jesus on the cross, Luke 23, is a submission to the oppression. Yes, use your earthly freedoms to make things as right as you can as a citizen of my living room. But we got to remember, we don't let that define us. The citizenship that we have, this nation, this earth, that doesn't define us. We are citizens of heaven. It is Jesus who informs our activism, not the other way around. And I'm excited for where we're going to go, where we're going to go as a church, and what ideas are going to come from all of this incredible study and prayer and consideration and repentance and growth. Like Lynn manuel says in Hamilton, this is not a moment, it's a movement, that we're turning this moment into something bigger, into something that we can do something about. You know, I'm personally glad that I'm not trapped in a room full of, full of false promises about freedoms that are really just an illusion. I'm excited that I can celebrate every day, not just one day a year, but every day as a citizen of heaven. Philippians 2 reminds us that Jesus was God, but didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He he didn't use that privilege. He didn't take advantage of that entitlement. And so after Jesus took a lifetime leveraging his freedom for the kingdom cause, He gave up his ultimate freedom, the right to live willingly so that we could be free. So let's look forward to opportunities to deny ourselves daily and limit our freedom for the good of others and leverage all that we have in the limited time that we have on this earth, confident and joyful as citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that we have simply touched The tip of the iceberg of what you have to show us about justice through your son Jesus, through the apostles, and through the prophets of old. We ask that you will continue to be our compass as we drive forward your kingdom justice in this unjust place. We pray that you will teach us how to limit our personal freedoms, denying ourselves so that we can lift others up. We can also leverage whatever we have that the world's given us in this tiny little place so that we can do you right, take responsibility, and honor you and everything that your son died for. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.